On this episode of Narcissist Apocalypse, we talk with an abuse survivor named Abigail, and Abigail was raised by a psychologically abusive controlling father. It's a story of survival, boundaries, enablers, identity erosion, smear campaigns, and going no contact for good. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse, everyone. I am Brandon Chadwick, and with me today, we have Abigail. How are you? Hi, I'm good. How are you? I am good. Thank you for asking. And if you want to be a guest like Abigail is today, please do go to our website at NarcissistApocalypse.com. Top of the page, there's a button that says Guest Form. When you click on that button, it takes you to our Guest Form page. And there you can read all of our instructions and either send us an email at NarcissistApocalypse at gmail.com or fill out our Guest Form and press the Submit button. And please do send it in the format that we ask for. And there is a content warning for today's episode as we do discuss physical abuse in this episode. So that is your content warning for today. And today we are going to hear Abigail's story. And in this episode, you will hear terms like cult and community. And the term cult in this episode is used in reference to how Abigail's family was run with her father being you know, the de facto cult leader in the family. And when we reference community, those people are not a cult. It's just a community of people from the town where they are that practice the same belief system. So hopefully those terms don't get confused in how we reference them when telling this story. And also this episode, you get to hear what it was like to be a child of an abused mother and the feelings that go along with it. You'll get the adult child's perspective of what the mom went through, how the child felt about all of these things, all of the observations, and also how Abigail was able to finally leave the family and go no contact. So with all that being said, I'm going to get out of my way and your way. Abigail, the floor is now yours. Okay, thank you. So my story is essentially about my father and how his mental illness affected the decisions he made and the things he did and his behavior. And my story is also about myself and how I was lucky enough to break out of my father's cult and out get out from under his abuse. Uh, from what I understand, my father grew up neglected and he felt unloved and therefore I, he's not capable of loving. He's not capable of being empathetic. And I think that all stems from the neglect as a child. My mom grew up in a home where her parents fought a lot. And so I think marrying somebody who just told her what to do and she would have to do as he said, and there would be no fighting in the house because she would just do as he said. I think that resonated with her because of all the fighting growing up. So my earliest uh, childhood memories are three things. Number one, being absolutely terrified of my father. Not like the way somebody should be as scared of their parent, like terrified, terror. The second memory is how my father treated my grandparents, my mother's parents. He was completely evil towards them. And I, I didn't understand why. Now, now I know why. And the third memory is how he treated my mother. My mom was getting verbal abuse, mostly verbal, mental, emotional. I actually never saw him hurt my mom. Uh, an example of the kind of abuse my mom dealt with was as soon as they got married, he distanced her from her parents, her sister and her friends. He would say, he would brainwash her that they're no good. And then he would do something like this. So she one time ended up in the hospital for some reason. And for years, he's been badmouthing her sister to a point where she didn't have much to do with her anymore. And he would say to her, where's your sister now, huh? And my mom couldn't answer him anything because if he said, oh, you distanced me, she'll get punished, she'll get in trouble. But if she said, oh, I don't know, and she agreed with him, that's 
personal damage. Like it's just, it's not true. So the psychological abuse was he would get, he would get in her head and say things that she couldn't answer back to a point where she just was helpless. So he'd create situations where in this specific instance, it's a, an isolation and then there is a lie or, or a truth wrapped in a lie where it's true. Your sister, her, your mom's sister wasn't there for her, but he's the one that created the situation of isolation and everything for her to never be there in that situation. So yes, there is a truth, but there is a massive lie that is wrapping that up. So your mom was probably caught in a series of all of these things, making her doubt what's going on, or at least go along with what your father is saying. And I think if I remember correctly, in our earlier call, when we were organizing, one of the things that stood out was you said, my dad likes to keep people under his spell. Yep. And, you know, for your mom, your your mom's now in this and your dad is very good at the smoke and mirrors of everything, you know, and in this situation for your mom, it makes it look like your aunt is the bad person when in reality, you know, it, it's your dad. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. There was a lot of psychological abuse that made her think he's crazy just to a point where she just let him take the reins. And later he did that to us as well. So as soon as my parents got married, like within a year, they had my brother and then they had my sister and then they had me. And after that, they had, you know, a lot more children. I'm from a big family. And my grandparents would come quite often to help my parents. And they noticed right away that my father was abusive. My mother's parents, they would come. And they would say things, and that's why my father hated them, because they caught on to him and they weren't under his spell. So there was always a fight. Every time they came, there was a fight. For example, my grandparents once came with food, and my father had said something abusive to my mother, and my grandmother questioned him. So my father threw fish at my grandmother that she brought and took the soup that she brought, stuck it outside, and said, take your stupid soup and go home, get out. And they would have to leave. And this would happen constantly to the point where like, then there was really uh, fractured relationships. So my father didn't like anybody who called him out or anybody who saw what was going on. So I just remember him being absolutely nasty towards them. And as a young child, it was really painful to watch because I loved them and they were good to us. And it was very confusing. I just wanted, you know, a normal like grandparent kind of family situation, but it was never the case. There was always a fight. But my grandparents kind of stayed as much as they could out of it because they wanted a relationship with their daughter and that they would have been completely cut off if they like stepped a little bit too much over the line. And the abuse of my mom was even more painful to watch because it was my mom and I loved her and she was good to us. But she just understood from very early that if she was going to survive in this relationship, she was going to shut up and agree with everything he said. In the beginning, if she questioned him, the way he got her scared is he said, just be grateful I married you. Who else would have married you? You stupid fat, you know, like you just be grateful no one else would have married you. And, and he said, you're nothing without me. You're nothing without the children. And so she understood very quickly you're not just going to pick up and leave with a bunch of kids. And so she, she was just scared of him. Also, I mean, she loved him. She was charmed by him in the, in the beginning. That's how he won her over. And uh, there were times that he was in a good mood. And so he was loving. And so she really loved him and respected him and thought everything he said was true, even things that make no sense. And so when we were younger, we weren't a threat to my dad. We were just little. But she was the main ally he needed. Because like I said, he's kind of created a cult of the family. And so anytime she questioned him, which was rare, but if she did or she upset him or said something, she can get like a three-hour lecture, four-hour lecture. It can go till 3 a.m. And I remember once I couldn't fall asleep because I was so sad that my tired mom is sitting at the kitchen table and he's preaching to her about what a terrible person she is. And I came out of my room and I said, let her sleep. You'll talk to me. Obviously, I got in trouble, but the confusing part was that my mom said, yelled at me, like, stop it, like, let leave him be. 
I will take it. Um, and she would like fall asleep at the table and he'd snap at her and say, what are you ignoring me? You're not listening to me. And, you know, I just heard today, I heard a song and there was a line in the song that said, there's no mercy in a cold and dark soul that resonated with me because only a cold and dark soul can make somebody sit and listen to them preach when this person's tired, like he could have continued in the morning. So she would take notes and like hang up notes in the cabinets of all her misdoings and hopefully do it better next time. It was just painful to watch my mom be beaten down over and over again to a point where she was helpless and, and shamed over and over again. So when it comes to your dad and his abuse toward your mom, he's really become the truth teller in her world. Your mom lives in fear. She's being put down. She's isolated. She's led to believe that she couldn't survive without him. And she's conformed to him in the, there's this just erosion of the sense of self in your mom. And your dad has some elements of the demand man from Lundy Bancroft's list of abusers from the book, Why Does He Do That? And part of these things that's kind of going on with your dad is it's, it's your job to do things for me, including taking care of my responsibility. You should be grateful for whatever I choose to give. Your dad thinks he's above criticism. And your dad, as you stated, is I am a loving, a very loving and giving partner. You're lucky to have me. He has elements of the Mr. Right from uh, the Lundy Bancroft book, Why Does He Do That?, where he thinks he's the ultimate authority on every subject, and when you disagree with him about something, no matter how respectfully or meekly, that's a mistreatment of him. And he also has some elements from Lundy Bancroft's book of abuser types, Why Does He Do That?, of the drill sergeant, where you know I know the exact way things should be done. Uh, and he also ruins relationships with friends and relatives if a partner stands up to him, such as by attempting to preserve any of her rights to freedom. His violence and threats are likely to escalate until until she is hurt or terrified enough that she should that she submits to his control. And your dad has really created a world here to be the center of everything and you're watching all of this so when do you start to figure more of who your dad more out of who your dad is or that your family isn't like other families um elementary school was not very different with witnessing abuse but it was also more, I started understanding the dysfunction and instability that we had because everything was about my dad and he had his cycles of moods. And so if he was in a bad mood, everything stopped and was about him. And if he was anxious, everything was about him. There was always somebody that he was upset at and he was going on and on. And I just remember as a child, like the instability caused a lot of anxiety for us. Like if he was upset at somebody and he was giving my mom a speech about it or just ranting, my mom couldn't take us to school. So we never knew what the schedule is going to be or or if we're going to go to this in this place we're supposed to go to. We just walked on eggshells around him, always tried to make him happy because he was our dad and like we wanted to make him happy. But my childhood was um, a cycle of tension, explosion, calming down. And then like a honeymoon period. So the honeymoon period was great. Like we sang, we danced, we loved him. We had a great time. But then tension would happen. He was very sensitive. So if somebody insulted him or if he didn't feel loved or if somebody wasn't giving him tension, the tension would start. And it would like go on for a few days. Then the rage or the explosion would happen where the yelling, the screaming, the throwing, the once in a while physical abuse. And then and then there was like a cooling down period. Sometimes he would he wouldn't apologize, but he would say things like, you know, you know, really I'm good. Right. And we just kind of went on because all we knew was make him happy, do what he says and move on. So as you mentioned there, you are going through the exact same abuse cycle as someone who would be in a relationship, even though that you and your siblings are the children and you were able to identify that at a very early age. So 
what are you doing at this point for your survival? And did your siblings have different survival techniques than you? And were any of you ones that were maybe a scapegoat of the family or are the ones that could have been more rebellious than others? And how are they treated differently? Yeah, that's a really good question. So my older brother was half the favorite, half the most like um, abused and uh, brainwashed. He he definitely was very loyal. He never questioned or made a fuss. He just did as he was told. My older sister, it really went in one ear out the other. And I definitely was rebellious. One of my biggest pet peeves is like watching injustice. And so I would say things and I would get in a lot of trouble. And yeah, so, and then I had a younger brother as well, who was a little bit rebellious and and we were the ones that were most likely to question or stand up for something. Rarely we'd do it because we were very afraid, but we were, we were the ones and, and therefore actually in a way we were the most uh, psychologically abused, like shamed into feeling very low so that we stopped doing that while the other ones were maybe left alone a little bit more. Some of my siblings, if I would stand up for my mom or question, they would say, stop, like, what's the big deal? But I couldn't, it really hurt me. Like I'm just very empathetic and I feel people's energy. Something about growing up in a home with a person like my father is at least my personality is you learn to feel people's energy. Like I can walk in a room and tell you who's anxious and who's not. And it's it's not a good thing because my energy gets left behind. I have no clue what I'm feeling. I'm really worried about what everyone else is feeling. Well, well my question to you then would be, are you hypervigilant? So therefore you're anxious at trying to feel out what the room is feeling. Absolutely. Yeah. That is one of the, that is one of the, I guess, things that come out of this whole thing that I'm one thing I worked on and I keep working on is not being so concerned with everybody's feelings. Like, you know, but it's, it's natural that I could just, I can tell you how someone's feeling and I'm always very concerned about it because that's how I survived. That when I I walked into the house, I had to know if my father's in a good mood or in a bad mood, how to appease him. And that, that was literally my entire childhood. Whereas my other siblings, some of them were the same way. My mom was definitely like that. Like she knew she can read my father and behave accordingly. Some of my siblings were just like, man, whatever. Like I'm doing my thing. But it it just really bothered me. And how did you feel about your mom at that age? And how did you feel about your siblings at that age? And did this cause issues between all of you? So when I was younger, no, we were always, my siblings and I were always very close. We actually had each other when my father threw his rages. It was really helpful to have each other. We never got into a fight over the differences because we actually never discussed the differences until I was married at the house, which was the first time I brought up to my siblings that I don't like the way my father is behaving. At that point, some of them got upset at me and said, why are you saying bad things about our father? But until then, we never spoke bad about our father. We were absolutely terrified. It was like understood in the house, even though I deep down was confused and didn't like what was going on. It was understood that we do not speak bad. On the contrary, we always spoke good about him. Like when we were, we felt like we had to tell everybody how amazing he was because he was so controlling that he was always in our minds. Um, My mom, I, I always loved her dearly, but I do remember there were times when my father behaved in a certain way that I was sure she was going to stand up for me. And she didn't. And I understood that that was because my mom is more afraid of my dad than she loves me. And it's, it's a painful truth, but it's just, she, she couldn't, she couldn't stand up for us. And uh, unless he was coming at us physically, then she would get in front of us. Otherwise the words, anything, anything can go. Uh, For example, this was when we were older in high school my father got really upset at my brothers for something they did. And he was, he was coming at one of my brothers, like he was going to hurt him. And my brother ran to the end of the house, jumped out of the window and started running away. 
And I remember my father looked at my mother and said, go find him, go get him, call the police, get him back. And I thought for sure my mom would say, well, what do you expect? You're going after him. And no, she like went dutifully and called the police. And I was just like, this is too far gone. You know, she's too afraid of him. There also came a point where I heard on this podcast, the term narcissistic fleas. I think after so many years of being with my dad, she sometimes behaves like him. And one more example, sometimes when he got really mad at her or us, he would say something like, these are not my children. They're your children. They behave like you and your parents. They are, these are not my children. They're disgusting. I have nothing to do with them. And I remember thinking, of course, my mom's going to say something like, these are your children. I've only ever been with you. But she didn't say that. She kept quiet. Because if she said that, he'll say, oh, you're mocking me. So watching her was, it was a little bit, it was a helpless feeling and a little sad. So something that you said to me in our previous call was that you wanted to be approved by him, but you also hated him. And we hear so many people's stories and it's this, you've been rejected and you so want this approval of this person that's never gonna give it to you. Or if they are going to give it to you, it'll be really fleeting and very, very temporary. So can you describe how this feels, I guess is the best way to put it. And at a young age, you know, what were you really want him to accept and what was he rejecting about you? Yeah, so I remember just a girl and her dad. I just wanted him to love me and I wanted to make him proud. But then I remember it got a little bit more confusing where I needed him to be proud of me. Like I needed him to approve of me because he taught me that without his approval, I'm worthless. And so it was all at once confusing, painful. Once in a while, it felt really good. And just, but overall, it was not, it wasn't healthy. So it felt like there was nothing I can do to make him accept who I was. What he hated most about me, which was something I loved most about myself, was my empathy. He wanted me to turn that off if he was being mean to my mom. And you know, it wasn't like he would be proud of like grades at school. He was proud when I gave him all my money. He was proud when I told him something I didn't want to tell him. And afterwards, I would be very confused and I'd feel shameful because I was like, why did I tell him that I didn't want to? And at the same time, I was happy I did. So he did a really good job of psychologically damaging me where I could not figure out who I was and what I wanted because there was no me. There was no what I want. It was what he wants. So I find myself saying things I don't want to say, doing things I don't want to do, being somebody I'm not, just to make him happy and get that like five minutes of his smile on his face, but then saying, wait, I didn't want that. That's not right. So the currency of your household, it's just really the cult of him. He is the center of everything. And as long as he is the center of everything, his opinion, the way of doing things. That means being voiceless, not standing up for yourself, having zero boundaries. That's the currency of your household, and that's how you survive. That's how everyone is surviving it. And either you believe it or you don't. And the more you don't believe, the tougher it is to be in this home and in this environment. And if you do believe it, you know, the tougher it will be to not end up like him eventually, or just really all of his thoughts, all of his beliefs might become your beliefs as well. But that's the way to survive for everyone in your household. Right. Yeah. So it just, it, like I said, it kind of became a cult where everything he said was right whether or not it was right, whether or not it was appropriate. 
and everything he did was right. The way we lived our life was correct. The way everybody else did was incorrect. There was a lot of bad mouthing and making fun of everybody else to a point where like we really believed that everybody else's life was dysfunctional and ours was normal. And we were really inculcated with certain beliefs about how no matter what, you don't question your father. And I understand that that's a normal thing to tell a child, like, don't question me. What I tell you goes. But the line is drawn if there is something that's completely wrong. And but we were not allowed to question that. I remember the first time I watched a normal exchange between an adult and a parent was watching my husband and his mom have a conversation. And they had a slight disagreement about something, but they were very respectful. And I remember my mouth was like wide open, eyes going from one to another, waiting for him to get in trouble because he questioned something respectfully. And that was the first time I said, oh, this is how normal people live. Like the parent can say whatever they want, but the child can also say, hey, what about this? Or what about that? Or can we discuss this? And then the parent discusses it with them. So yeah, that was that was uh, definitely, the cult was definitely zero questioning. If you question, you get in trouble, et cetera. So as you got older, I guess in your later teen years, uh, how did the abuse intensify? And what was going on as far as who you were as a person? Were you a did you lose, lose even more of yourself? Yeah. So in high school, it got a little more intense because we got older. And so we would question or we would do things that would really upset him. Whereas a young child, I couldn't necessarily do something that upset him. As a high school kid, I could. And so if I ever said anything that was, you know, questionable, I didn't just get punished. I got like a really long psychological verbal abuse of how I'm worthless and disabled and I'm never really going to amount to anything. And I, again, the worst part was that I couldn't question it even when my mind was screaming like, wait, that's not right. Like that doesn't make sense. Like question it, but I couldn't. That was the most damaging part. Um, When there was the lies and manipulation in high school, for example, if a friend came to my house and he didn't like something she said, I had to kick her out. And again, with like the evil part was I can plead and cry and say, please, I don't want to embarrass myself. There was no, there was no listening. At a certain point, I remember I realized that I just need to live for him and that's how I'll survive. And I shut off a small part of me. But there was always a part of me that I kept strong. I knew I knew I had goals and I knew I wanted something, a good, better future. So I held on to it. But in high school, it was just, you know, more of the constant brainwashing and not allowing questions. And I remember one time my father got really mad at me and he chased me down the stairs ripped my shirt, used his foot, put it on my stomach to grab hold of my shirt and ripped it. I was so traumatized. I remember actually telling some of my friends. And uh, two weeks later, social services came to our house. And they questioned us. And we said, no, everything's fine. They knocked on our door and our parents answered. And in front of the social services, our parents said, do we ever hit you? And we said, no. Do we ever abuse you? Are we great parents? Yes. And they left. And my parents figured out it was me who told a friend. And boy, did I get a speech. Like, what a nasty kid to go say something like that about your parents. That's not even true. I remember feeling so helpless and shamed because I knew I didn't do anything wrong. I knew I just lied to the social services. And I said that my, my father's great. It was such a damaging, like despairing feeling of my soul. And um, that was just a great example of how he's, he first he told me I lied. Like you make stuff. He's like, oh, you make stuff up. There's something wrong with you. You make stuff up. And he did this in front of everyone. And my mom was on his side. And uh, it was just, 
it was a helpless feeling. I'm proud of myself that I told somebody what happened because I did not do the wrong thing. But I wish that social services understood that just because you don't see black and blue marks does not mean that parents are not abusive. I also learned that if both parents are on the same side, it's virtually impossible for social services to do anything. And my mom was always on my dad's side, so there was nothing we could do. And I also learned that hindsight is a very bad thing because I look back and I say, I should have, I should have said, no, he's this, he's that. I had them there, but I couldn't, I didn't have the skills. I, I didn't have where to go. So I did my best. I mean, yeah, I did the best I could in the situation and we got them out of there as soon as we could. And I felt terrible that I told my friend about what went on in my private home, you know? So that was pretty much my high school years. Okay, so college was pretty much the same as high school, maybe a little bit more intense with like the just constant speeches. I think I think by that point I was I was very much in the cult where there was no chance of leaving, no chance of questioning. It was my normal. But again, there was always a part of me that knew deep down something's not right and I know that my equilibrium wasn't intact. Like my subconscious and conscious were not on the same page, but I was surviving. Um, my biggest memory in college was when I my I asked my father something and he said no. And I was like, that's ridiculous. And I rolled my eyes. Now, I agree that that's disrespectful and that can completely earn like some sort of reprimand from a parent. But my father, he took this like frame I just brought, I just bought. And he smashed it on a chair. And then he threw something at my head. I got this little bruise. And then he was coming at me with a look in his face that looked like he was going to kill me. And I said, I'm about to die. I need to pretend that I'm going to faint. That's the only thing that's going to stop him. And I fainted. It was like one of the help. It was, I, I pretended to faint. It was one of the most helpless times of my life. He stopped, called the ambulance. And when the ambulance came, he told my mother, start vacuuming these these little bits and pieces. And they asked me what happened. And he's like, what happened? Tell them what happened. And I said, oh, I tripped and fell. And that was very shameful. But again, I was doing what I had to do to survive. And the next day I had a bandage on my head and went to college. And my friends asked me what happened. I said, I fell. Again, I remember the most damaging part was that I got a speech from my mom. You can't like that. I shouldn't be upsetting him. And I was like, you're, you're my mom. Like we're like, I need, you need to stand up for me. But instead I got a speech. And again, my mom did a lot of the speeches and a lot of the whatever. And my dad's just like in the background. And, uh, he take, took my phone away right away because again, needed to isolate me during that moment. So no one could figure it out. And none of my siblings were home. So they didn't see, but that was college. I remember because there was, you know, there was a lot of times that I just was trying, trying to say something I really wanted to say. So eventually within your household, being married and bringing someone in that will also fall in line was something that occurred. So any of your siblings who brought someone in from a healthy family, that could be trouble for your dad. And first, your older sister got married, and then her husband fell in line with how everything worked within your family. And then you, you meet your future husband, and he came from a healthy family. So walk us through what happened from here. It was like when I met him, my parents were very excited because he was very smart, and they assumed he's going to become another cult member. Uh, little did they know I was the problem because I didn't like the cult. So they also didn't know that my husband's one of the most independent thinkers you'll ever meet. And so it wasn't all this nonsense wasn't going to work on him. But during our engagement, for some reason, like everything was like fine and calm. I guess my father figured he'd start doing all this stuff when we got married. But and and my my husband didn't pick up on anything in the beginning. It was kind of like covert. So it's kind of like you're dad had your dad had his own version 
of love bombing here, or at least we're normal family. So he's not trying to scare your partner away. He's Mm -hmm. maybe on his best behavior, maybe um, buttering him up possibly to Mm -hmm. make him think that, oh, we like you, we appreciate you, we think all these good things about you. And when you say bring him into the cult and bring him into the family, you know, it's not just part of being the family in one way. I think you also explained to me that there is a family business as well. Yeah. And to possibly be part of everything. Right. So it's not just being part of the family family. It's being part of the family the family business, and then the hierarchy, which is dad, and then all of the the children are supposed to bring in siblings to be worshipers of dad. And that way dad can have his thumb over everybody and have more minions. Correct? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, when... My relationship with my husband was my first experience with a man who loved me just because he loved me and just wanted me to be happy. And it was the first time that somebody made me feel good about myself. And when I tried to put myself down, he did the opposite, which was say, no, that's not true. You're amazing. So it was an interesting experience for me, but I I really liked him, loved him. and. When we got married, everything was great. Although looking back, I could tell you I had no boundaries because I was terrified of my father. And so my father would call me like every day and I would answer. It could be 11 p.m. and we're in bed and I have to answer the phone. My mom or my dad would call me. They would tell me what to do, what to buy, how to live. I didn't question them. But I started understanding what a normal relationship was because I was in one. And so I was, I was feeling really, really bad for my mom. Like I had a new sense of sadness for her because now that I was in an intimate relationship, I understood even more how painful it must be for her. And that was really hard for me, I remember. And I started kind of saying things to my siblings like, that's wrong about this, is wrong about that, but they didn't agree with me, they didn't like it. I was also... Um, exposed to my husband's family, who was very different than mine. They, their, his parents literally like lived for the children. It was all about what's best for them. They spent their life thinking about what they need to do for the children. There was always stability, and it was my first experience seeing that too. And so, I knew, I knew I had proof that something was wrong. But more important than stability, I was with somebody who treated me the exact opposite of my father. And so my whole life right now, I was questioning because he always said, in my mind, he was always right. And everybody who was bad was bad according to him. And now I was seeing a completely different side. And around eight months after I got married, I developed serious anxiety and depression. And we're trying to figure it out. I'm going to therapist after therapist and they are deducing, well, you're in a happy marriage with a good guy. Like what's going on? One therapist finally started digging into my past and my family life. And they said, oh, wow, you need to make boundaries with your parents because what's happening now is you're becoming free and you have, you're being pulled on one side to your father's abuse and control, but you're being pulled psychologically to this other side of future normal and healthy life and your body just can't handle it. And I I kind of hit rock bottom and I remember thinking something's got to change. I can't live like this. And the straw that broke the camel's back was my father called me once. He wanted some sort of tax information from me. And I was very uncomfortable with that. I I was thinking like, I'm a married woman. So I said to him, well, let me just discuss it with my husband. He said to me, why are you making problems? You don't have to discuss it with him. Just give me what I want. Don't make problems for me. And I'm thinking, I mean, I'm I'm trying to be a good wife and he's literally telling me not to be. 
that was so red, very a very big red flag. And I, I remember hanging up and I told my husband, my father really wants some information from me. I don't want to give it to him. So my husband says, tell him no. I said, I can't say no to my father. I've never said no to him in my life. And he said, so maybe send him an email. So I wrote a nice email saying that I basically, um, I'm not, I'm not sending this information to you, et cetera, et cetera. And I sent it. My heart was pounding. 10 minutes later, I get a call from my mom yelling and screaming. What kind of nasty daughter sent such an email to her father? So I'm crying and shaking because she's yelling at me, but I know I don't want to send the information. So I'm kind of torn again. And my husband says to my mom, because I was on speaker, he says, you know, she's, your daughter's crying. Like maybe let's just like leave her alone. So then he gets yelled at. Finally, my father gets on the phone and does his severe, intense psychological verbal abuse on me. And then he hangs up. And I'm crying and shaking. And I look at my husband and say, I never want to talk to my father again. And my husband says, I understand. I'm going to support you in that decision. I see what's going on here. I see how he treats you. And that was actually the last time I spoke to my father six years ago. And um, in the moment, it was, I mean, now it's the best decision I ever made. I'm a completely different and happier person. But in the moment, it was really hard because my whole world came crumbling down. It wasn't just that I'm stopping to speak to my father. It was also everything he ever told me now I questioned and my whole upbringing I questioned. Anyway, my father and family started a Shamir campaign. They called my in-laws, told them nasty things about my husband and myself. They called literally everybody I knew, colleagues, friends, relatives, and I'm getting bombardment of phone calls saying, what's going on? My father had told everybody that my husband's abusive and we need to get Abigail home. And so the it was just the constant that was going on until I got a new phone number. So first how does it how did it feel to put your foot down that day and come to that conclusion like I don't want to talk to him anymore and then a smear campaign happens where they try to smear your husband how do you feel about that and then how does your husband feel now because now, you know, he's supporting you in the abuse that you've endured your whole life. But now he has become this target as well in a very big way amongst the community that you live in. So what were everyone's feelings surrounding this? And um, who was there to support your husband in the aftermath of this as well? So I remember when I made that decision, I felt extremely, I think, proud of myself because that was sh very strong of me. I do remember that five minutes after I told my husband, I don't want to speak to my father anymore. I said, "Never mind. let me send him everything he wants and we'll get back to normal. And my husband's the one who said, no, if you do that, you're just going to perpetuate the cycle. And so I don't know if I would have been able to do it without my husband. So although I felt really strong, I still was so controlled by my dad that I don't know that I would have been able to do it. But I do remember it was like a brick off my shoulders. That decision alone was so helpful. And then the second question, how did, how did my husband feel? My husband was traumatized by what they did to him. He has never experienced abuse in his life. His parents are loving. Everyone in his family is loving. I don't even know if he knew the word abuse. Like he did, but he didn't know what it meant until he got abused by my family because they decided he's the one that made me stop speaking to them, which wasn't true. And he was at the same time trying to support me, but also kind of deal with the things he was hearing about himself which were all not true, very painful lies about him. And he's, he's unbelievable in the way that he supported me and tried to not let these things affect him when I saw they were hurting him. Like he got physically sick. He was so confused why 
loving somebody's daughter would make somebody behave this way. So his support were his parents, mine as well. We, they're incredible. They were supportive. And my husband just kind of understood that this is not normal behavior. And so he understood that him being the normal person in my life was a big threat to my father and the cult. So at this point, you know, your family is essentially your, your, the cult and they are in a very close knit community of people and word travels fast and everyone knows everyone's business. So even though the larger thing might not be technically a cult, your family is acting in that way. So when you leave, just like in a cult, you get shunned by everything. So take us through this. Yeah. So I remember calling uh, a community leader from my town and talking to him about what was going on. And he said, I cannot believe that somebody left that cult. He said that your father is one of the scariest, strongest, controlling people. He said, we're all scared of him. The fact that you're leaving is unbelievable. And I remember that gave me a lot of strength. And, you know, they they made a story. First, the story was her husband's not letting her talk to us. Then the story was, we don't know why she's not talking to us. Then the story was, she's crazy. And they told this to everybody. Now, a lot of people called me and I told them the story and then they called back my parents and questioned them. And then they got shunned as well. Anybody that questioned my father. As soon as those people got shunned, they're like, oh, we get what's happening. You're doing the right thing. Keep doing what you're doing. But we're not going to get too involved because your father's crazy and he can make our life help. So most people did not want to get involved. There were some people that were supportive. Uh, honestly, I didn't have, I really didn't have much support because people just don't want to get involved in this kind of nonsense. But a lot of people already knew what kind of person he was. So when they heard what was going on, they're like, oh, she's done. Like, that makes sense. She's married now. She's in a healthy marriage. It can't, you can't have a healthy marriage and be part of that cult. So most people understood it. But again, I don't know to this day what some people think of me. I don't know what they said about me. I know that my family said some pretty bad things about me. And something that you learn when you go through this is you can't care what people think about you because otherwise you're going to just ruminate your whole life. What is everyone thinking of me? I let go of that. I just accepted that. It doesn't matter what anyone thinks of me. I did the right thing. I did what I needed to do. Um, have the support that I need. I made new friends, unbelievable friends. And at the end of the day, I got through it, you know? So before we get into my next question, I just kind of want to get into explaining why an abuser might start a smear campaign and, and why your dad might start a smear campaign by going over a bunch of the different reasons before I get into, you know, a, a question about how, how you kind of felt about things. So when we're talking about smear campaigns as we are right now, you know, abusers will engage in, in smear campaigns for several several reasons. And the, the driving force of this often lies in their need for control, power, and the preservation of their, their self-image. And anyone who questions their superiority or hits their injury uh, will become a target for revenge. Thus, while it may be a personal attack on you. The reason for this smear campaign is not actually you. It's for the, you know, really like the protection of the, of the fragile nature of the abuser's ego. So an abuser may engage in a smear campaign to protect the facade of who they are. And they could have like a real fragile self-esteem and they will go to really great lengths to protect their self image as 
a flawless person or a superior person. They present, they tend to present a false image to the world that enables them to draw people in and manipulate their surrounding environment. And if there's any chance you may expose what they are truly like, they may attempt to discredit you by starting a smear campaign. And smear campaigns also help them maintain this, you know, this big facade that's going on by deflecting attention away from their faults and then projecting them onto others. And another reason why there's a smear campaign, an abuser might have a strong need for control, but their sense of control here is easily challenged. So smear campaigns allow abusers to control narratives and perceptions. You know, by discrediting others, they ensure that they remain in a position of power and dominance. And another reason for a smear campaign by an abuser is to avoid accountability. So if an abuser is faced with accountability or criticism, an abuser can often resort to like blaming others. And it's just a way to shift blame, making the victim appear responsible for any issues or conflicts that are going on. Another one is abusers like to seek revenge. So you may have caused uh, I, I guess an injury or, or a harm to the abuser and they could be very crit- sensitive to criticism and, you know, they might perceive that you have wronged them in a specific way when, when you really didn't. You might be speaking up for yourself or challenging them or questioning their superiority or entitlement in any way that causes them uh, emotional harm or, or an injury of some sort. And people like to call it a narcissistic injury when it's when it's a narcissist. And if that self-esteem, you know, really gets hit on their end, they'll often seek revenge. And instead of confronting you directly, they will engage in a smear campaign. And another one is to isolate the victim, why a smear campaign can happen. So an abuser, you know, by tarnishing a victim's reputation, they really kind of aim to isolate them from support networks. And this, iso- I, and this isolation makes it easier for the abuser to maintain control over the victim and prevents others from offering support or believing the victim's side of the story. So after going through all of this, you know, uh, a lifetime of, you know, pain and and being voiceless and, and, you know, now this this smear campaign that has happened against you and just being in this control for so long, you know, how has your healing process been? What's your healing process been like? The healing and thriving part of my journey is actually fascinating because when I left the cult, I wasn't just trying to get rid of my anxiety and depression, which by the way, I got rid of within like a few weeks of not speaking to my father, like magic. But it was actually a journey of re-raising myself, if that makes sense. Like I almost became a child again and I had to learn what normal was. What are boundaries? What do I want? What's important? What's normal? What's not? How do normal people behave? And it was hard because as an adult, it's, it's, it's more embarrassing when I need to learn certain concepts that I should have learned as a child. But I kind of went through my whole upbringing and questioned everything I learned. And as situations in life would come up, I would understand, oh, this is something I need to relearn. My husband helped me a lot. I would ask him a lot of questions and say, if I made a mistake, is this how I should feel about myself? And he would say, no, you just move on. It's okay things like that. I also had to understand that I'm not disabled. I can work a job. I can work two jobs. And even with all my flaws, I'm a good person and I have a lot of potential. I had to learn to love myself. I had to bring out my identity again and remember, what do I love? What do I want? Who am I? I had to learn boundaries and that I could say no if I don't like something or if I see something or hear something, I can stand up for myself. And I also remembered that I always just wanted authenticity and honesty in my life and where I was truly me. And so I 
just kind of also had to also become a new person amongst all that. And I have my husband's help for that. Like just being married to him made me the best version of myself. He gave me space to figure out what I want. It could be anything in the world. I just had to be me. I've always loved reading, but I wasn't always necessarily allowed to read what I wanted. Um, everything was censored because reading a book about an independent woman is a problem for my dad. Now I'm able to read whatever I want, watch whatever I want, go wherever I want, learn whatever I want, be around people who speak their minds and have their own opinions. And that was really, really, really amazing to be able to bring my hobbies back out. And also not being interrupted during the stability of my life. Like I have a structure and a routine and the fact that I'm able to control that part of my life and nobody's going to make me stay up till 4 a.m. because of their problem is also something that I'm enjoying, like self-care and things like that. And I guess what were the, or, or still today, what are the biggest things that you're dealing with? Like, what are your big triggers and, um, what are things where I guess your, your PTSD, your C, your, that your CPTSD from your whole entire life still affects you? So I am overly uh, stressed about boundaries. I think like I mentioned with you, because I wasn't taught boundaries and I was taught to give people whatever they want, whether that's information or time or energy, I get very stressed that if somebody doesn't have good boundaries, they'll take advantage of me. But worse I won't stand up for myself. So something I'm working on is understanding that boundaries are in my control. Somebody doesn't have to have boundaries as long as I do. I can set them. Um, another PTSD is people who are abusive. Like if I'm around someone abusive, I, I have to leave the room because if they're if it's the kind of person that saying something will just make it worse, like then they're going to say something even more hurtful to me. I can't even be around that because it triggers me. It reminds me of my dad. Um, yeah, I, I worry. I worry about things like what's going to be. I worry about the future. But I guess, I mean, like a little bit of anxiety. But for the most part, I think actually I don't have that anxiety when it comes like compared to a person who hasn't been through this. And earlier you brought up the word shame, you know, while you were growing up, how do you deal with shame and does it still pop up? Like, do you ever get a moment where you think about something that happened and it hits you and how do you deal with that? Yeah. So shame and hindsight go together for me because in hindsight, I always could think about what I could have said. Like the things you could have said eat you up, but you couldn't say them because A, you didn't have the support system. B, you didn't have the skills. You didn't have the strength. So when it comes to shame, I thank God don't feel shame anymore in, a mo in the moment because people don't shame me. And if they do, I will stand up for myself. But if I behaved in a certain way or somebody took advantage of me and I feel shame later, I always tell myself I'm human and this is a learning experience for the future. I understand that all the shame I felt as a child and in high school was not my fault. It was survival. And I did what I had to do to survive, which was feel shameful. But I know I'll never feel that way again. And I tell myself, I know I'm a good person. I'm doing the right thing. I don't have reason to be ashamed of anything. And what were some of the things that helped you in your healing process? So a lot of self-care, a lot of structure and routine is something I thrive on. So taking care of myself, exercising, eating healthy, spending time with people who, are, who love me and are good to me. And a lot of reading and listening to podcasts. I read a lot of books to understand how healthy people's minds work, you know, what, what they tell themselves, how they behave. Listening to that and reading that over and over again really, really 
worked for me. I did a little bit of therapy, mostly, and some, you know, talking helps, but mostly the self-work was me just really going deep and finding the strength within to rewrite my brain and change the way that my brain worked from a young child to now. You just have to really learn to love yourself and um, treat yourself the way you would treat somebody you love. So if you had any words of wisdom for everyone listening, what would they be? People sometimes ask me why I'm so happy. And I really think it's because people who know great pain, like the pain that I had of losing all my family because I left the cult, they, those kinds of people can also experience real joy because I tell people I am free. And one of the greatest gifts in life is freedom. And that's why I'm so happy because I'm free now. Um, and another thing is that, yeah, the ultimate freedom and healing is being happy, not thinking about the abuser, not crying and, you know, being stuck in that because they, they love that. They would love if, you know, you're falling apart and then they can say, oh, look, without me, you're nothing. So the ultimate healing is just being happy and be- becoming the best version of you, which is a daily and lifelong process, but we can do it. Well, Abigail, I really want to thank you for being here with us today, sharing your story and, you know, going through your childhood and really discussing how difficult it is when you're coming from a family that is running itself like a cult and that there is no support from either of your parents, uh, or at least the one that's supposed to be the healthier one. You know, your mom was trying to survive in this, and in the process had, you know, became a soldier in his army, but at the same time, your mom became this protector of him while she was trying to be a protector of you, but over time it became more of protecting the family, which for so many people out there, they've experienced this and has to be one of the most hurtful things when you come to that realization that the abuser is the one being protected over you and everyone has fallen in line. And I know that you have compassion for your mom and that is you know, someone like you has empathy and you understand why and where she came from, but it's also very sad that you have to lose your whole entire family to be free and to feel free, to live a life free from abuse, to live a life free of control. And everyone here is happy that you're out and happy that you're getting to live this life and so many people listening are going to hear your story who grew up in the same way or currently in these situations. They could be spouses who have children just like you and, you know, you help them create, you know, movement today and you gave them words and and language to do so. And I really can't thank you enough for being here today and sharing your story because you're going to help a lot of people by doing so. So just a really big thank you for being here. Thank you so much. Well, thank you once again, Abigail, for being a guest on our show today. And if you want to be a guest like Abigail was today, please do go to our website at NarcissistApocalypse.com. Top of the page, there's a button that says Guest Form. When you click on that button, it takes you to our Guest Form page. And there you can read all of our instructions. And either send us an email at NarcissistApocalypse at gmail.com or fill out our guest form and press the submit button, and please do send it in the format that we ask for. And if you are someone that needs support, we have a support group at NarcissistApocalypse.com. So go to our webpage at NarcissistApocalypse.com, top of the page, press that support group button, 
and you'll see that we have our very own safe social network and inside there you'll see that we have zoom meetings every wednesday night thursday afternoons and saturday nights we have forum boards for you to post on to get the validation that you need from survivors just like you it is a wonderful group of people on there so if you need support join our support group today at narcissistapocalypse.com and if you need even more support, please do go to domesticshelters.org. They have articles and resources to help you make sense of what you're dealing with. They have every phone number, web address, email address for shelters and agencies, no matter how big or small the town you are from, domesticshelters.org has it there. So if you need help from them, go to domesticshelters.org. And we have a friend of the show called Shelter Movers, and Shelter Movers can be found at sheltermovers.com. And Shelter Movers helps people who are getting out of course of control and domestic violence. They help you get all of your stuff out of your home and into storage. That includes your pets and livestock too. So if you're needing help getting out of your home on the day that you're leaving your home, getting all of your stuff out of your home and into storage, they can help you with that for your pets and livestock too. And it is a wonderful organization. It's only available in Canada and it is a donor-supported charitable organization. So if you want to support them or you need help from them, go to sheltermovers.com. And that is it for today's episode. So for myself and Abigail, we hope you have a good night. <laughs>